Jeffrey Rapper and Kiwata Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio has contributed both to Complex and the Hardball Times, and most relevant to this edition of the program, she has served as the Fangraphs resident for the month of April. It is Shakia Taylor. Shakia Taylor is the guest, and on this program, we'll become better acquainted with Ms. Taylor. For example, we learn how she became a fan of Cleveland's baseball team, but not Cleveland's other kind of teams. Decision she made with a view to self-preservation, if nothing else. Taylor discusses how the White Sox continue to represent the scrappy south side of Chicago, the city of which she's been a resident for half her life now. We also learn about Taylor's attempts to indoctrinate children, both familiar and strange, with a love of baseball. Taylor also provides some important wisdom on the virtues of failure. Who's Taylor on the virtues of failure? I mean, if you're going to fail, fail up. All this and what's to follow in that conversation with Shakia Taylor. Before we go to that conversation, a brief note. It is both my privilege and also my professional obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Readers of Fangraphs.com can support the excellent work that appears in those electronic pages. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, not unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable, readers of Fangraphs.com could acquire an ad-free membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny of advertising. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership, available only at Fangraphs.com naturally, by going there and then clicking around. With that advertisement complete, we can now move on to the aforementioned conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Fangraphs resident for the month of April, Shakia Taylor. And when does it begin? Right now. Last night, in that uh, that you live in the Chicagoland area, is that true? Yes. How are you a native of Chicago? I am not a native of Chicago. I was actually I have a weird origin story. Mm-hmm. I was born in Maryland. My mom is from North Carolina. Okay. My parents met in Maryland. We lived in Maryland, Virginia, D.C., North Carolina, and then Ohio, all before I was 11 years old. <laughs> oh, okay. Not a military brat, but I claim Ohio as home because I spent from ages 11 to 18 there. Okay. Then Chicago came for college, and I've been here ever since. Now, I think I heard you mention on Lawrence Holmes' show that you are, you're not a Cleveland fan per se, because that would have, essentially, it was it's like a strategic move, so that you do not essentially suffer too much. Is, is, that, is that roughly it? That's 100% correct. Okay, that yeah. You're probably the first person to get it to that way. Yeah. Growing up in Youngstown, so we're a like a border city. And so we're in Ohio, but right next to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. We are the exact halfway point between both Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Chicago and New York. So our TV, we got games from, you know, all four places and a lot of kids in my hometown picked up teams in other places i grew up with some pirates fans i grew up with some cubs fans in youngstown but i chose cleveland one of my really good friends we call him jim joe but his name is james he is a hardcore cleveland team fan of all of the sports there 
But in my family, we only chose one team per person, so we didn't experience too much heartbreak. Right, yeah, you have to diversify your misery. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I did a good job of that, to be honest with you. Oh, no, what, ha- what happened? <laughs> so I chose Cleveland baseball, and then, so I mentioned my mom's from North Carolina, and my mom loved Michael Jordan. So Bulls, we were a Bulls, a Bulls house. So I had some happiness for a while with the Bulls, but now the Bulls have been rebuilding for the last 20 years. And then I didn't have an NFL team as a kid. I didn't pick up the Bears until I moved to Chicago and my college roommate's family had season tickets and they took me to games with them. Okay. So that's interesting that you say, so I don't, I mean, I understand. I I recognize that that the (laughs) NFL exists and I understand the rules of the game. I've only been to, I think, two pro games ever. And part of it is because (laughs) I listen, I love living in New England, but I detest I've never been like an outdoorsman. And um, (laughs) and uh, so like but like if if you go to an NFL game anytime, like in the second half of the season in I mean, Chicago is certainly not immune from this particular fact. I mean, it's like a Shackleton esque experience. You could I mean, you could die with exposure to the elements. (laughs) Is that, I mean, were you never, were you never worried for your life? So I have, it's funny you say that. I went to a Bears Cowboys game in December in Chicago. They were retiring Mike Dicka's number. Mm -hmm. This game was so cold that you couldn't actually drink your beer unless you wanted a slushy. I will never, ever, ever, ever do this again. It was definitely a one-time experience sitting out. I had on five layers of clothing, and that's unreasonable. If you ever need five layers of clothing for something, don't do that thing. No, (laughs) no, it's like fine if if you – if it's like a survival type of experiment, I think. Right. Or if like legitimately you are an Inuit, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like you and like you need that to live and and not die and that this is because you're following the traditions of your people. Right. I like anything outside of that. Yeah, I have a hard problem. I love the indoors. Big indoors guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I'm not I would never ever classify myself as outdoorsy mm-hmm. in any way. And my grandparents had a farm when I was younger mm-hmm. and I was a kid you could not send outside to do anything. Like Shakia Go get the eggs from the chicken coop. Nah, I just won't eat breakfast this morning. <laughs> you know, like, totally fine if we don't have eggs. Uh-huh. Or, you know, the whole, like, playing in dirty things. I was never that kid. As an adult, I still don't like to get dirty. I once was chastised for eating pizza with a knife and fork, but I didn't want the sauce to get under my nails. Like, I am not anywhere near being an outdoors. Yeah, but this, in this particular case, you were willing. Now, listen, I, well, I think you went to the White Sox game last night. What, what, was, the, what was the weather like there? That's, that's okay, the word so I'm looking for, yeah. I think we have to keep it in Midwestern perspective. Mm-hmm. It was 50 degrees. 50 degrees in April in the Midwest isn't that bad. No, <laughs> like, no, it's hot. It's hot, yeah. <laughs> So it was about 50 degrees. And as no, as it got dark, you know, and the wind picked up, it was in the 40s. Mm-hmm. So I personally thought it was bearable. I had on a hoodie and leggings and boots and a coat. So it wasn't like I was dressed up any more than I would be on any normal April day in Chicago. Do you think that now I believe if I'm not mistaken, Lucas Giolito was the starter for the White Sox? Yeah, poor guy. And I think, he, I mean, didn't he walk seven? He walked seven, I think. He walked too many. 
He walked way too many, and the Astros hit a grand slam in the top of the second. It was so, so, so. I mean, I felt bad for him. Yeah. Um, it was 8 0 in the second, and people started going home. And, you know, they already have a difficult time getting people to Sox games. Yeah. So keeping them there was kind of a mess. And there were quite a few Astros fans in the house. There wasn't a lot of heckling because it was such a one-sided game. I really thought they were going to pull Giolito out earlier than they did. I would have, but I guess the White Sox feel like they're still in their window of growth here, so they're not going to do too much. They can take their list. Giolito's an interesting player, right? Because I think he's like, I mean, he's famously talented physically, right? Like mm-hmm. he, he's been on prospect raiders for a long time. He was like, um, he was drafted in the top three, I believe. I could be lying about that. Out of, <laughs> uh, Harvard Westlake was a high school that's produced some other good uh, baseball talent. So he's a weird sort to write to. He's like famously, I apologize, 16th overall, but he's like famously talented. And yet he has had very, he has had a lot of trouble translating his natural talents into actual like success. And I have to think, like, that's a weird place to be. In particular, like, in his situation, like, he probably didn't fail until he was actually in professional baseball. Right. That's a that's a strange place to be. It is. And I also think, so the White Sox is probably not a bad spot to be if that's where you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, just because right now, what was it last night? He allowed, what, five hits, seven walks? nine earned runs in just over two innings. I mean, if you're going to fail, fail up. This is where to do it. (laughs) Like, like this is where to do it. Considering he's on the same team as James Shields, Big Gang James, Mm -hmm. where that nickname seems to kind of be hysterical. Well, it hasn't followed him in his last couple stops as a professional, unfortunately, yeah. You know what? You're not really missing anything. Um, I hate to tell you. Like, I don't know if you saw anything about the Sox game on Wednesday night when they were um, in Oakland. And it was bad. It was bad. Like, he got in the game and they went into extras and tied it up. And then they lost. And there was a lot happening. So, being on the same team as that guy, I mm-hmm. feel like you can't look too bad. <laughs> you know, actually, the White Sox right now, I'm, I'm sure this is this is largely by design. More than any team that I could think of at the moment, and it, it's, it's very possible I'm speaking at a turn, but the relationship they have of kind of like of guys with like immense physical talents, but maybe less in the way of refined baseball specific skills, like is, mm-hmm. is pretty immense because... They, I mean, they have Tim Anderson, their shortstop, who has been. I mean, he's, he's obviously talented, but I think he didn't even play start playing baseball till like he was in high school. So it's it's like clearly understandable why he's not a star at this point. But he's like so physically talented that he's been able to compensate for that. They have Yon Moncada, who is actually not bad, but well, yeah. but he's like he's a he's a physical specimen. He's giant and strong and fast. They have a, their center fielder Adam Engel is like super fast, but. Does a lot of swinging and missing. And then they have, like, basically all their pitchers. Giolito, Reynaldo Lopez is another guy with, like, really amazing physical capacities, but not necessarily translating them. I mean, I, again, like, this is probably by design. As you note, like, they're willing, they're, like, fine with losing this year as, as long as it means they can develop a couple of these guys. And you know what? All the things you described, firstly, 
Whenever I go to a White Sox game, I the, I say this more than one time. Man, he is huge. I don't know. <laughs> that like doesn't really translate on TV how big these guys really are. Yeah. I mean, what's Giolito like? Six foot six. He must. Yeah. Well, he must be a big guy. Yeah. Jose Abreu looks massive in mm-hmm. person. Like, and this is from the stands. I can't imagine actually standing at level ground with him. But it's funny. All the things you described about the White Sox kind of are reflective of the neighborhood that they're in. The White Sox are Chicago's blue-collar team, right? They're mm-hmm. the team of the working class. They're the team of, you know, people who work hard. And it kind of looks that's what the team is as well. They're they're not the superstars, they're not, you know, the household names. They're the guys who just get out there and they try real hard. <laughs> right? Like, I think that's the best way to look at it. It's their brand, even. At least it is locally. I can't speak for other places, but definitely locally. I'm curious about that because, all right, obviously Chicago has two teams, the Cubs. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Cubs were, what, they were, for years they were sort of lovable losers, and then and they've sort of had a bit of a – they've experienced a bit of a transformation in particular since. Theo Epstein and his uh, merry band uh, began, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, began uh, you know, putting their fingerprints on the team. And then Chicago, or sorry, the White Sox have gone through a couple of different identities. But uh, yeah, I'm curious for your sort of read. Now, you've, you've kind of already sort of started to, to comment on it, but your sort of read of the White Sox and, this, and the city's relationship with the team at this point, so far as you see it. Oh, yeah. So the the White Sox, I don't know if you remember Mayor Daly, the second one, the son. Mm-hmm. He was a huge, huge Sox fan. He's how they got that ballpark, you know, um, <laughs> huge Sox fan. And the neighborhood they're in is named Bridgeport. And it's a historically blue collar, working class, you know, lunch pail neighborhood. And it's on the south side. And the difference on the south side and the north side is a lot of like socioeconomic things. One of the major things that people like to discuss is just purely money. It's even though the Cubs were losing, the Cubs had very wealthy fans. The Cubs had the fans of the North Shore, the North Suburbs, etc. And the south side is where all the people work really hard and, you know, they they eat their hot dogs and it's. <laughs> It's very reflective in the fan base, and I feel like the team has kind of evolved into that. It fits. It fits. People love it. When I was on the Lawrence Holmes show on Wednesday, he even was talking about how White Sox fans, after the Cubs won, kind of had like a we're still here campaign going Mm -hmm. on. Like, you know, they won, but we're still here. They are kind of the second team here, despite winning the World Series you know, in 2005, it's who they are. I almost think they embraced, or at least currently, they embraced their underdog status. And it could be working well for them. Last night, there were more people in that ballpark than I've ever seen outside of the Cubs series there. Well, that's good. Anytime your your attendance numbers are no longer in the triple digits, you're you're moving on up. Yeah, what what was well, I I think I had so actually Chicago is blessed in at least one way, and that's in terms of broadcasters. The White Sox, uh, or I should say, the Cubs broadcasters, Len Casper and Jim DeShays are really good. And on the television side for the White Sox, Jason Benetti is fantastic, and I think mm-hmm. that he has also allowed. He is, in some way, he has, he has emancipated Steve Stone, who for some time was, of course, working with Hawk Harrelson. Yes. <laughs> Hawk Harrelson is, is, he is a very specific taste. Yes. 
And if there are people who enjoy it, then I, I will not begrudge them that. But I will also just say it's not my taste uh, necessarily. Oh, yeah. I made fun of Hawk the other night. I actually, Lawrence mentioned that Hawk was upset about something. And I said, well, what isn't he upset about? Like, <laughs> when was he never upset? <laughs> he, um, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he has some opinions about how things ought to be. Yeah, some of them to me, and I'm only speaking for myself, you know, were a little irrational. Mm, they definitely yeah. came off to me as, you know how they say older people, they become unfiltered and they just say whatever and they're very get off my lawn. Yeah. His disdain for the Cubs registered as that for me. It just didn't make sense after a while. Yeah. I have lived here for 17 years almost, and I don't view those two teams as rivals at all. And a lot of the fans don't either. There's just a very specific segment of people who view those two teams as rivals. And he was one of them. And um, I love watching Sox games if they're not playing, you know, at the same time as, say, the Cubs or Cleveland. But um, I, I do think having a two-team city and being able to have such interesting broadcasters kind of keeps the game interesting here for us when you got two sets of teams who are possibly losing simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but, uh, but Jason Benetti is, I don't know if you've had the the opportunity to listen to him broadcast the game before. He's fantastic. I think um, he's, he's very good at sort of at integrating a lot of, you know, some of the nerd concepts into, mm -hmm. but in a way that's uh, very palatable. And, it, and more than anything, he, he utilizes things like reason <laughs> uh, which, I, which I find uh, very refreshing, and um, yeah, no. So I think that uh, that that's one way, uh, certainly, which in which that town excels. I'm not sure if I was building to a larger point. It's possible it I was, matter. but but the moment <laughs> has passed very clearly. So in terms of you, now I know that you wrote recently, um, and I think it was your first post for your residency. You wrote about Little League specifically. You wrote about a little league in Chicago and how Little League itself is uh, very much for those for anyone who's interested in seeing greater diversity in the game, um, especially among American-born players, then ensuring that Little Leagues remain diverse and that it's, and it's accessible for everyone is like very much is very much the way to do that, to ensure that. But I wanted to ask you, before we get to that, or if, even if we don't get to that, I want to ask you about your beginnings. Now, you mentioned that you were a Cleveland fan. Were you? Did you play at all? I did. So <laughs> when I used to visit family members in Maryland, so my mom and my dad are not married to each other. That's okay. And so <laughs> I spent, I always have a weird time explaining that. I'm like, well, they're both married, just not to each other. Yeah, that's um, okay. Yeah, that happens. That happens. <laughs> and so I went to visit, I would go visit my dad for full summers in Maryland. And as part of my summer activities, I would join in whatever my cousins, I have two cousins who are exactly my age, born the same year, both girls. So whatever they were doing for the summer, I was doing for the summer. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it will be Girl Scouts and some summers it will be baseball. And I will admit that I didn't really fully appreciate baseball in any way until I was about 11 years old, 12 years old. But as a younger kid, I could catch. I could catch really well. I can actually still catch really well. It's almost like instinctually. If you throw something toward me, I'm going to catch it. People at work like to do it for fun, like toss me a set of keys and watch my hands shoot up. It's the funniest thing, but that's what got me interested. Playing as a kid and my uncle insisted, well, you're the only kid on the team who can catch. Get in the outfield. 
Like, so, so that was how, like, it started. That was the budding interest there. And I do think that kind of is why I feel the way I feel about Little League now. I made friends playing baseball in the summer. I got hit with the ball a couple of times. It happens, yeah. yeah it's going to happen. <laughs> and... And my teammates were always so concerned because I was, you know, <laughs> but yeah. And just even now I have adult friends, men and women who always talk about their experiences with sports as children. And I don't like that parents can make sports unfun as in they make them entirely too competitive. But I do like that learning sports as a kid can foster a lot of things. Firstly, interest in that sport. Second, you you learn, you know, social skills and you become friends with people and you may meet children from places that you would have never normally met them. And then on the larger scale, which is what my piece was talking about as far as, you know, Major League Baseball is where do people think these kids are going to come from? Like, you don't just one day sprout a baseball player. There are some instances where some guys are naturally talented and in high school or whatever, they pick it up. But for the most part, you start out as a nine-year-old kid, probably on a t-ball team, and your mom and dad are annoyed because they have to drag you here oh, and there. Oh yes, very but annoying. But that's yeah. right. That's what it comes from. I really <laughs> think, and 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 I, I'm only speaking of the African American community because that is my community, and I'm not really excluding anyone else. But I know that in the black community, we don't really have a lot of teams. We don't really have a lot of interest. And I think that also is not the only reason, but like there's money involved. I learned in Chicago, a rec league team charges the parents $75 a kid. $75 per kid does not cover the full cost of a season. It's the only cost that they pass along to the parents because they want people to be able to, to afford it. And in some instances, these teams are requesting grants and having to have fundraisers and hoping for community, you know, intervention where people come by and want to help pay for these things. And I found out that a, um, a rec league team for children in Rogers Park, which is on the north side of Chicago, it's the same neighborhood that the great Loyola University of Chicago sits <laughs> in. Uh, <laughs> Actually, my wife, uh, my wife lived there for a while. Yay! Yeah, in the in yeah. the shadows of Loyola, yeah, yeah. I went to Loyola and oh, did I you? Was, yeah, hardcore over the Ramblers during March Madness. I bet you were. That yeah, that was that was so unexpected because I just remember yeah, I remember it was a school that was nearby and uh, <laughs> and I I think I what I knew it for was that it had a great Jesuit tradition maybe. Yeah. What, what I knew. yeah. I never really thought of it as a basketball powerhouse. Yeah, we oh, didn't either. <laughs> yeah, there they were though. <laughs> But I learned that the the nearest park to campus is called Loyola Park. And the Cubs donated the equipment for those children. And so one of the moms was talking to me about, you know, oh, it can't be that expensive. We only paid blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what park are you are you going to? So after a little research, it's like the reason why you pay so little is because the Cubs are financing the rest of it for you. Yeah. And and I think people forget that that it's expensive. And if we want more players of diverse backgrounds from the U.S. to play, that's the way to do it. I'm not saying, you know, throw money at every problem, but this is something that we could actively contribute to. 
and a, a lot of kids want to play. I've learned that recently that there are a couple hundred kids in Chicago who would love to play and Jackie Robinson West, that team, despite the outcome of that, inspired a lot of other children to want to play baseball. Why not give them the opportunity? Can I say another thing that I think, um, and uh, I would like to uh, validate everything that you just said? Mm-hmm. One other, you, you talked about some of the advantages of, of youth sports. And one of them is, and I don't know if this is discussed often enough, but I think that one of them is that it teaches people how to lose or that losing is not, is not the worst thing that can happen. That is so true. <laughs> I think it's a really valuable skill because because to be an adult is to lose pretty consistently. That's that's essentially <laughs> what it is to be an adult and to be fine with it, to be like, yeah. And then also to wake up the next day and uh, to proceed and recognize that, uh, you know, the uh, the world is not over. I think that's a really valuable skill. And uh, yeah, and only uh, and just another reason, I think, probably why it's good to get as as you say, to get to get young people involved in sports. No, I agree with that aspect. Yeah. That is actually 100 percent true. Just Are you a good loser? Are you a good loser, Shaquille? I am. Hello, <laughs> Cleveland Indians baseball team. I am an excellent loser. In fact, I have said this on Twitter on so many occasions that I just stopped saying it after a while is I feel like fans get so emotional about the game, about losing. And I have said, hey, you still have to go to work tomorrow. You still have to do whatever responsibilities you have in life, whether this team wins or loses. So don't let it have such a strong impact on your day. You know, like I get upset when my team loses, but I kind of laugh it off. And that comes from watching them lose for so long. <laughs> you've developed you've developed some coping mechanisms. You know, I, I mean, and that it's funny. I mentioned football earlier. But that also came with being a Bears fan. This past season, if the Bears won, I would be like, what? Are you serious? Because <laughs> and, and when they lost, you just expected it and you would laugh. In fact, the Bears lost in such hilarious fashion that you're like, yeah, that's a very Bears way to lose that game. It's kind of <laughs> like when Twitter did the Cubs were the cubes because they could always find a way to lose a game. I think learning how to lose is just as important as learning how to win because who you are shines through in both of those circumstances yeah. and um entitlement is a big problem and losing kind of curbs that <laughs> it, it does yes yeah well that's the thing that's that's actually one thing i've always admired about athletes obviously for anyone who's who's been through junior high school and high school there is certainly a population of uh, athletes out there you could find who are dicks. Um, there's no shortage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that that athletes, in particular at the highest levels, a skill that they've developed is contending is contending with losing and and it, like you're saying, like not assimilating those losses, just being like that happened. That's an, that's a thing that's external to me. And then to you know arrive the next day somehow with the the same. It's a it's sort of like a metronomic personality one needs at that point is not to be uh, not to be altered too greatly by by the result, but you know caring mostly about the process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, we all lose, right? Like at something, at something. And one of the best things that I can compare that to is job hunting. Mm -hmm. Have you, have you had a spell (laughs) of that at any point? I have. So (laughs) I'm, I've been at my current job for like a year and a half, but for six months before that I was job hunting and nothing puts life into perspective like job hunting. Like you're like, I'm qualified for this job. I'm going to apply. And then you don't hear anything and you start questioning yourself and whatever. 
And, and at some point, job hunting kind of becomes a loop, right? Like, I'm applying for 10 jobs every day. What a waste of my life. Mm-hmm. But, but, you, but then when you get the job, you're like, oh, job hunting paid off. I got a new job. You completely forget that you spent all this time just pissed off and upset that, you know, job hunting can be demoralizing. But you come out, if you come out with a job, you don't look back on it so harshly. Well, I was going to say one of the great moments in life or the great periods in life is is that if you currently have a job and then you are offered and accept a job for the future and that time between when you leave your current job, but before you begin your next job, that period of time in between is among the sweetest that is that is possible because you have <laughs> the guarantee of a paycheck in the future and you know because you've been employed you're probably you're probably doing somewhat okay but then you have this moment where you can breathe and maybe make some bad decisions and the the consequences will not be particularly bad i think that's a great moment now did you have one of those between job vacations i did so and i try to remind people that you know so i had a job and i have been with this with this uh firm for like six years and when I went into it, it was like, oh, this is great. You know, I was working at another law firm. This is what I knew. But then it got to a point where I realized either I'm going to quit or I'm going to get laid off <laughs> simply because there was nowhere else for me to go. I had reached the top of where I could go. They weren't going to pay me anymore to keep doing the same job. Like, well, that would be pretty sweet if they did. That's not how it works. Yeah. And and so I immediately said to my dad, actually, I was like, I better start job hunting because I have a feeling I won't be in this job too much longer, whether by force or by choice. And I should have taken my own advice, but I took a vacation instead. I was like, OK, I'm going to burn up my time here first. So I took a vacation two weeks after my vacation. I got called in. And they're like, you know, you know, we think you're great. You know, you know, we we don't doubt that you can do the job. But at this point, you've kind of reached your ceiling here and we won't be able to afford you anymore. And we think that you're getting bored in the job. None of this was untrue. I definitely could do that job with my eyes closed. And it's interesting as a reasonably intelligent person when you get to a spot where you no longer feel challenged Mm -hmm. because then it's about okay, do I take the risk for the challenge or do I stick around and be bored and do the easy job where I know I'm going to get the guaranteed money? I like money, by the way. I mean, not <laughs> not only money, but money money is a part of the equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pays the bills <laughs> and, you know, all the other things we like to do. Uh-huh. And so then they the question was answered for me. They were like, okay, we're going to pay out your vacation time, give you your last paycheck and you will get unemployment. Okay, this kind of sweetens the deal here. (laughs) I lose my job, but I continue to have income while I look for a job. And it was summertime. I lost my job in May. It was hot. I lost my job the day after Javi Baez hit the home run on Mother's Day in inning 13 at Wrigley Field. I was at that game. And so I was like, oh, well, I could probably just spend my summer going to baseball games and you know kind of job hunt occasionally you know because you have to job hunt if you're collecting unemployment and so that's what I did I job hunted and then I took on the occasional temp job too 
it wasn't that I didn't want to work. It was that I wasn't in a rush. So I understand being in that sweet spot. My sweet spot happened to be six months. And as soon as I reached the end of my severance and all of that, I had another job. Started that one and here I am. Oh, that feels, that's good. Six months is great too. Yeah. Oh, you took like a, uh, like an accidental sabbatical. Yeah, it was really nice. It was yeah. really nice. I was 34, mm-hmm. so I was transitioning into turning 35 and all the things that come with that. Or was I 33? I can't remember. I was 33, turning 34, yeah. You think you think 34 to 35? You think that's a uh there's a that's a landmark? For me it was. Yeah. It really was. So, I have been living on my own for almost exactly half of my life at this point. I left home at 18 and never looked back. I lived in Chicago on my own, self-sufficient for all these years. And so it was a milestone for me. It was a, it also is like, I kind of grew up here in that I grew into adulthood. So, and I don't know, 30, turning 35 was big. I went through a lot of changes in that year. A relationship ended, one that I thought like, this is it. We're hmm. going to get married. That definitely didn't play out that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had some friends who I thought were going to be my friends forever. And no, nah, that didn't happen either. But so... And I'm not sad about it, as you can probably hear. Like, I've definitely gone through the, the, the changes of love and loss and, you know, getting on with my life. And same with, you know, job loss and getting on with my life. And I think at 35, I was just kind of like, okay, I have made it to 35. Everything <laughs> after here shouldn't be too bad, right? Like, <laughs> I, I experienced the quarter life crisis. I went blonde and red and purple and I cut my hair and I grew my hair out again and I had braids and I worked in retail and a law firm and mortgage company. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I have gone through the changes. Now it's time to be a real adult, I guess. The only responsibility that I really took care of was general household bills. And I have a dog. I've had a dog since she was eight weeks old and now she is eight years old. So... Yeah, 35 was my, I'm a real adult. I think it is, yeah, I think it is too. And uh, there's a, yeah, there's a lot that goes with it. I'm 38 myself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I didn't expect it actually. I didn't expect <laughs> that 35 was going to be uh, some sort of um, transitional year. But it's it's a lot, when you're when you're still like 32, you, you're, you're within the proximity of the 20s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you cannot, uh, there's things that I do now. I said, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm 38. I mean, you know, it started and that started when I was 35. There are just oh, certain yes. uh, rules, I feel like. I've actually used the phrase, I'm closer to 40 than 20 at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny. Last night, while taking the L from Sox 35th to Addison, which is kind of funny, my friends and I, two of my girlfriends went to the game with me. And we're on the L and we're chatting about how we had to get out of the game before the rush to the L. And we didn't want to <laughs> stand and be packed in. And we're going to the bar because we said we were going to the bar, but we weren't going to stay all night because I got stuff to do tomorrow. Like, that is the age we have reached, that I got things to do. <laughs> it's, and it's fine. And that's the thing. It's fine, too. Because at a certain point, just the, the prospect of, of a night, like a good night's sleep is the one of the most seductive sort of things that you can do in your entire life. You're like, oh, you mean I'm going to get 
like to getting to bed at like 10. Well, of course, we have a uh, we have a small child now. And I don't know if you know about these these small children. They're very unreasonable, in particular with regard to their sleeping habits. They'll do things like they go to bed, but then they'll wake up at uh, like 3.30 in the morning or 5. And then they're just up at 5. And they're like, hi, I'm up. I'm up. You're like, no, <laughs> we... Uh, there's no negotiation, I guess, is the problem. So just the, the prospect of like eight hours of sleep in my future, that is enough to thrill me. And it's fine. It's totally fine. Is this depressing, Shakira, or is it okay? I actually used to be a babysitter. And I say used to be because I don't watch kids as much as I once did. But I will every once in a while um, because I understand that my friends have a great need for just time to not have to be parents. Yeah. And I will volunteer and a lot of friends are like, are you sure you want to watch my kid? And I'm like, what's a couple of hours? So my friend Christina, she and her husband have a four-year-old named Tony. And Tony is every bit of a four-year-old. She's all over the place. And whenever I come over, she thinks that I am there to visit her, <laughs> not her parents. It is, it is our time to play with blocks and whatever. And so one night her parents decided they wanted to go out with other adults. Can you believe that? They it's wanted to actually shock, yeah. talk to people who don't ask them for juice every other sentence. And so I was like, oh, my God, I'll totally hang out with her. I'll watch her. That'll be so fun. And they're like, are you drunk? <laughs> and I'm like, no. So I come over and me and this four year old hang out. She actually starts asking her parents, when are they going to leave? Because they thought we would need like a little transition time. And I come while they're still there and then they'll gradually, you know, make their way out the door. Instead, Tony's like, aren't you going to a party? Don't you have somewhere to go? And it was wonderful. I've been trying to get this little girl into baseball and it's not happening. Yeah, I was wondering about the if the indoctrination had begun. So my friend Jennifer's daughter was a lot easier to indoctrinate than any other child, probably mm. because Jennifer already likes sports. And she had she taught her kid how to like do like the safety in football. And she was teaching her the difference between balls and strikes when we went to a Cubs game. So teaching her kids sports things was easy. But it's my friends who don't like sports or aren't as into it as I am, whose kids are the most difficult because they have no introduction. Yeah. Tony, I was like, oh, let's watch Rookie of the Year. And she's like, no, let's watch insert name of whatever show it is with a little girl who plays with a bear. I don't know the name of it. Foreign to but yeah, yeah. My, my goal is to indoctrinate as many children as I can <laughs> since I don't have any of my own. You're like, um, a, I, you're like a Pied Piper of, uh, of baseball fandom. Yeah, or like, you know, the the godmother of baseball fandom. I like that much better. Okay, no, that's fair. Yeah, I'll allow it. I sat next to a family at an Indians-White Sox game last season during the streak. And this was when, so the Indians were in town playing four games against the White Sox in the evening, which meant I was sacrificing sleep because I live on the north side and the game's on the south side and night games start at 7 I'm not getting home until between 1130 and 12. You know how that goes. So this family sits next to my friend and I, and they have an eight-year-old daughter. And so the one thing people forget is that I watch Cartoon Network and as like background noise when I'm at home. So she starts talking about Teen Titans Go and singing songs, and I'm joining in with her. And she's like, oh, my gosh, an adult knows my jams. <laughs> 
And we start talking and I find out it's her first Indians game and her family is from Ohio, but they live here. So she's a long distance fan as in like she didn't get to go to any games in Cleveland yet. And we're talking and I'm telling her, I'm like, well, I started liking, you know, baseball when I was around your age and her mom is sitting right there, but she's way too into me. So then we notice there's some seats empty behind the dugout. And I start getting ready to go. And she asked her parents, can I go sit with her? No, you would think these parents would be like, no, this is a stranger. <laughs> we just met her 45 minutes ago. Instead, they were like, where are you going? So she's like, we're going to go sit down there. She go, Her mom's like, oh, we can still see you. So sure, go. So me, adult stranger, and this eight-year-old who's at her first game, we head down the stands and we sit behind the dugout together. She brings a sign, we're talking, we're having a good time, and some fans to our left start heckling one of the pitchers, and they were doing Pitchers Got a Big Butt. And that's this a little classic. girl, yeah, that's a classic. Right? Yeah. she puts down her sign, and she stands on her seat, and she goes, your mom's got a big butt. And I'm like, <laughs> yes! Do you tell them, eight-year-old girl who I have just met tonight? Like, And they're laughing. You know, they were good sports about it. She's like, don't talk about my picture. Your mom. And I'm like, well, well. And her parents are like waving, like, sit down. Like, Don't heckle other adults. Do you think that the parents were all right with you because you had the you had the sort of uh, Cleveland or the Ohio? Cleveland, it was on your, you were sort of like, personal resume so they they trusted you because you were from ohio maybe so you know i never really thought about it most children who meet me love me mm-hmm. and they probably were like well if our daughter is comfortable you know and this woman isn't being completely weird then we're okay and it turned into a really good night for this girl because we're sitting we're sitting there and you know they won and i was laughing really hard because again her first ball game and she got a streak. And I start asking her, what did she really want the most out of, you know, her game experience? And she says, um, oh, I just want to, uh, I want to get a ball. I go, what? I want to get a ball. And I go, well, hold on. Let's see what we can do. Well, the men sitting next to us start cheering with us to try to get her a ball. What do you know Sandy Alomar Jr. gives this girl a ball? That's a great story. And she had no idea who it was, though. So he just walks up and she goes, hey, can I have a ball, please? It's my first game. And he tosses her the ball. And me and the other adults are like, yo, you got a ball from Sandy Alomar. <laughs> like, but she has no idea who this is. And she's just like, yeah, I got a ball. And she runs back to her parents and her parents are, you know, congratulating her on her first ball. And her mom is thanking me like I would have never done that. I'm totally uninterested in this whole situation. (laughs) (laughs) And so the dad goes, who gave you the ball? And she's like, I don't know, some old guy. (laughs) And I tell the dad who it was. And now he's like, "Okay, we're going to take this home and put it away. What was your first like you, you mentioned that you sort of started to become really aware of the game around 11 or 12, you said. What what was the first and maybe it wasn't right when you were 11 or 12 maybe it was a little later on but what was your first team like the first team where like you knew the guys and they were your guys So I have the 
the pleasure, I guess, or the sadness. We moved to Youngstown, Ohio in November of 1993. And that was 90s Cleveland baseball. And so I just remember my friends when I was first starting school there were big time, big time into the guys there. And I'm trying to think of that team off the top of my head. But I, but Sandy Alomar Jr. was one of the catchers. I think uh, Carlos Baerga was on that team. Jim Tomey, Albert Bell, Kenny Lofton, oh, yeah. Manny Ramirez. Like, that was a big name team. Didn't and that team put up like a million runs? I know. <laughs> I, I, I think they scored a lot. Yeah. They scored a lot. Approximately a million yeah, runs. Approximately a million, yeah. And that, so that was my first team where I knew the names of the guys on the team. I always joked. So there was a kid that uh, had a number seven gold pendant on his chain when we were kids, and he gave it to me because I was the girl who was like, Kenny Lofton, so awesome. <laughs> So that would be my first team. My first team would be we moved to Youngstown at the end of the 93 season. So that was when I picked it up because it was the cool thing. There were so many kids. You remember the starter jackets that were hot then? I do. Um, Vividly, yes. (laughs) So I had a Georgetown starter jacket and I wasn't allowed to wear it because it was representative of gangs. So... Cleveland was the one that you could wear that you wouldn't really get in too much for because it was local team and they weren't red or blue. It was red, white and blue. Mm-hmm. So one of my friends had, oh, and now this jacket looking back, we were, we were kids, but he had a starter jacket that had a Wahoo on the back. And I thought that jacket was so cool. So it was like, I would say 90s culture as far as like fashion and hip hop and all of that, like that helped. It really helped. You know, Kenny Lofton wore a gold chain when he played and that was my team. That's what got me into it. That's where my love started. Now, you mentioned that the that the starter Georgetown jacket was off off limits for you because of the yeah. connotations. Yeah, that's interesting. There was um, in my town. I think the Raiders were probably was probably the one that was used most often for that. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, like, if if you had to like rank, like the I guess I wouldn't have even considered Georgetown. And I'm wondering now, was Allen Iverson at Georgetown yet at that point? Because um, I think he, I th- he was. I think I don't I think, think so. he wasn't. Yeah, I think he was still too young. So um, it's funny. The piece that I wrote for Fangraphs this month about the White Sox cap and hip hop culture, I got a lot of people tweeting me about how they had White Sox caps because it was neutral, which is what I mentioned. And then they told me the things they couldn't wear. So here in Chicago, you couldn't wear bulls jackets because of the red and black and you couldn't wear purple and gold and you couldn't wear bears. And like, so that helped. Like the the White Sox switching to this really monochromatic situation helped everyone because kids were getting killed and robbed over wearing the wrong colors or wearing expensive shoes. And I remember it very well. My grandmother told me I couldn't wear my Jordans or my Georgetown jacket. And because we moved to Ohio from North Carolina, 
in rural North Carolina, there's no gang culture. Like, what are you doing? Stealing someone's tractor, maybe? <laughs> and so I had never heard of such. It just wasn't a thing. And I had to adjust to it. So it's interesting. So being a Cleveland Indians fan allowed me to be able to still wear some of the cool, fun things and not, you know, maybe draw the attention of the undesirable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I remember that. There was, yeah, starter jackets were a big deal. And those, yeah, those White Sox caps. I know, I I bought the White Sox cap too. And I don't know if it was indirectly related to the fact that, you know, like, I mean, we uh, it was NWA. Uh, obviously, you, you mentioned the prevalence of the White Sox had among the members of NWA, which, by the way, for the... F- essentially a featured image on the post that you did, Meg Rowley and I efforted to find an NWA song in which the members were wearing White Sox caps. And we found some. However, there must have been a sort of a branding conflict because the hats were blurred out in every case. She mentioned that to me. Yeah. And I want to tell you something, and I don't know how many rap videos you watched in the 90s. <laughs> that was the case almost all the time no do you, was it branding or was it some other sort of uh incendiary problem that they were worried about do you know no no it was specifically branding yeah. so and it, so it wasn't just like socks cats you could be watching a video and you could very obviously tell that someone was wearing i don't know let's say nautica mm-hmm. and it would but the word nautica would be blurred out or fubu would be blurred out and Because around this time, I don't know if it was because labels didn't want to be associated with rappers or if it was just because you're not paying me to put my brand on TV, so you must blur it out. But that was the case. If you go back and watch a lot of old school hip hop videos, there are a lot of labels blurred out. Right. And it it was not the case uh, already by the time of Dr. Dre doing none but G thing, because there he very clearly and uh, there were other baseball caps at the video, too, I think. But he Mm -hmm. very clearly has a White Sox cap on. And I also paused for a second because the feature image was a picture of Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And Dr. Dre's wearing the White Sox cap. Obviously, your piece is about the White Sox cap. Very relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Snoop Dogg just has a marijuana leaf on his hat. That's the team, <laughs> that's the team for which he plays. And, um, and, uh, in your post, and I don't, uh, and, uh, I think it should be a point of pride. It's the, it represented the first time that someone wearing a marijuana leaf cap uh, has ever has ever appeared in the feature image for a post at fanbase.com. Yes! So there you are. Yes. But I paused. I paused because I was like, huh, like, is this, I said, is, you know, I said to me, you know, I have these responsibilities. I have to say, regardless of what my own feelings are about marijuana, I have to say, is this something that uh, ought to be affiliated with fangraphs? But then I realized, like, and I live in the state of Maine, marijuana is legal here now, you know? And mm-hmm. if marijuana is legal in Maine, then it can't be that dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's it it's not that taboo. Um, so uh yeah, so I said, well, I, you know, it's legal. But it's it I don't know if this has happened for you in your lifetime getting to a place where you don't think of marijuana as a taboo. Or is it like a thing to be hidden? Have you have you had to contend with that? Oh, so, so it's funny. So um I live in a condo, right? So that mm-hmm. comes with a condo association and that always comes with that one annoying member who sends emails about things and you're like, "Come on." So one of the emails that I recently got, there's a guy who I keep wanting to call a kid. That's the age I've reached who lives two floors below me and he smokes weed. 
his apartment is one of the ones you pass on the way up the stairs. Mm -hmm. So, so you could tell that he smokes. And if I were college me, I'd stop by and give him all the tips on covering the bottom of his door and opening a window or this, that, and the third. But I just don't care. He's not <laughs> bothering anyone is how I look at it. And so my neighbor is like, we need to, we need to say something to him about his weed smoking. And I responded, do we really though? Who is he bothering exactly? So that's kind of where I am with it. It is, it's still illegal in Illinois, but it's decriminalized. Calling the police would result in this kid getting a ticket. <laughs> but I think we're giving the benefit of the doubt to your neighbor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Which I, I think is some, it's a good exercise at the very least sometimes. <laughs> we can say perhaps uh, he or she is not, you know, it comes from a time, as many of us do. Uh, when it was illegal and it was taboo, and so uh, you know maybe it's, uh, he or she's still functioning in that in that space. Oh, okay. which is why I asked the question: <laughs> yeah. Who is he bothering? Because it now, if if she were like you know the smell bothers me, it upsets my sinuses, allergies, whatever you mm -hmm. name it, makes my eyes water. Okay, cool. Maybe let's say something to the boy, but if he's really not harming anyone, this is kind of how I look at most things, though. If you're not harming others and you're probably not harming yourself, I really am not going to put my neck out there to disrupt my life to bother you about smoking weed. Now, if, if your neighbor did say that uh, it was bothering her sinuses, I think that she could turn to you and you would offer her uh, not only Sudafed, but also Theraflu. Correct. And yeah. I would also tell her that there is a way to resolve that issue without calling the cops on this kid. Like, that's ultimately what it was for me. It's like... You can handle this without involving the police because he probably has no idea that the hallway smells when he smokes because he's stoned. He's sitting, <laughs> like, he's sitting in his apartment, no doubt playing a video game because I live not too far from northeastern Illinois. So he's no doubt playing a video game or studying or I don't know, some other number of things. But you don't think, oh, man, the hallway probably reeks. You know, like, just say something to him. I'm a big fan of, it's kind of like, so we have a rule in my condo association that you talk to the neighbor before you talk to the association itself. Yeah. So if you're making noise, knock on their door. Hey, the noise is bothering me. If they continue, then you have an issue. But I definitely have reached a point in my life that I do not care about people smoking marijuana. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, and apparently uh, Fangraphs.com has no problem with it either, <laughs> is the final answer. A lot of people were happy with that post, if it makes you feel any better. I, th I think they were. Yeah, I think they were. Oh, I think it did I think it did well. I think I think it essentially, it tapped into this thing that all of us, this experience that, you know, anyone over, say, 30 or so had and had pretty abundantly at a time. And you say, oh, yeah, that White Sox cap. I mean, obviously, it's still worn, and uh, and you, as you mentioned in your post, Chance the Rapper redesigned the socks cap, so it still it remains a touchstone. But the emergence of that cap and and its popularity at the time, I know, I know it was for me, it was something that uh, you know, it was it was back there. You know, it was actually my wife and I accidentally watched almost all of the movie Wayne's World yesterday, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, we really didn't mean to. But that also, it's actually around the same time. And I don't know if there are any White Sox caps in it necessarily. But there is, there, there are moments <laughs> that movie has has crystallized, especially in terms of fashion. Rob Lowe, who was a beautiful man 
is occasionally dressed in what I gather were at the time perfectly reasonable, like casual dress clothes. Mm-hmm. Like he, but he has one pair of pants that has at least like five pleats on either side. I'd say it's too many, <laughs> too many pleats is, is what we say. Listen, Shakia Taylor, it's uh, it's been a real it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. It's been so much fun. I don't think I've laughed this hard in a really long time. <laughs> well, I'm glad that, to hear that. Uh, and I, I'm happy to notify you that you've fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Isn't that okay? <laughs> yeah. That's good. All right. That All is, right. I will say that is Shakia Taylor, currently the, the resident for Fangraphs for the month of April. Your work can also be found where, Shakia? I've written for Complex and the Harbaugh Times in addition to Fangraphs. Right. And of course, um, I assume that anything you wrote, uh, you would tweet at your, your Twitter account, which is Curly Fro. Correct. Very good. All right. That is Shakia Taylor. I am Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Fangraphs Audio.